You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Have a seat, friends. We're uh, excited to hear Morgan Thomas this morning. One of our um, Young Covenant partners is going to be reading to us our scripture. Um, It'll be from Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. And then uh, the gospel text is from John 15, verses 8 through 13. So let's hear God's word. Good morning, third family. Today, our scripture comes from Paul in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, and Jesus in John chapter 15, verses 8 through 13. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I tell you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down one's life for one's friends. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, friends, this morning, uh, we are starting a new sermon series uh, that we're calling The Church in a Time of Crisis. The Church in a Time of Crisis. This really builds on the sermon that uh, we preached two two weeks ago on Vision Sunday. And if you remember that sermon, I talked about how in many ways this past year has been an apocalypse. Uh, And you know what that means now. Um, It means a revealing or a disclosing And this past year, in many ways, has disclosed what lies beneath the surface of our lives and the surface of our society. And unfortunately, what we have seen underneath the surface is a whole lot of what Paul in Galatians 5 calls the flesh, the work of the flesh. We've seen a lot of ugly human impulses and behavior Uh, And not just out there in the society, uh, we've seen it in ourselves. I've seen it in myself. We've seen it in the church, the church uh, at large. We've seen, unfortunately, that in sometimes, in many cases, the church in the U.S. looks suspiciously like the dominant culture rather than being an alternative to it. And so we asked a couple of weeks ago, what should we do? And the answer is repent. Repent and pray and ultimately to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, so that the Holy Spirit might produce new fruit, no longer the unholy fruit of the flesh, but now the righteous fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's why you can see in this wonderful sermon graphic that Chris Porter made that the subtitle is Cultivating a Fruitful Community. That's what God wants to do in us with our participation to cultivate a community that bears good fruit. And so what we're gonna do from now through Easter is we're gonna be walking through Galatians 5, the fruit of the spirit, taking one um, each week. 
And you'll see when you look at the fruit of the Spirit, if you've ever studied them before, you'll, you'll realize that this is not just like a random set of virtues that Paul just came up with, but that in many ways, uh, this list is a description of the character and person of Jesus. This is Jesus, the fruitful person. And that's the goal, friends. That's the goal. The goal is not that we would be just become good people or moral people or religious people. The goal, in fact, I would say the goal of the Christian life is to become like Christ, to become little Christ, that we would resemble the person of Jesus. I love what Paul says in Galatians 4.19. He says, I am in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Isn't that an amazing phrase that God has deposited the seed of Christ through our union with him in us and the spirit desires to form Christ in us that we might resemble him and bear good fruit. So each week we're gonna take one of the fruits and we're gonna look at it with a, along with a gospel text, the words of Jesus, because he's the one that we wanna be like. And we're gonna look at how can we cultivate that fruit, not just individually as individual people, but collectively as a community, because that's what these words in Galatians were for. They were not just individuals, they were to the community of the church. How can we as a church be an alternative, fruitful community in a time of crisis, in a time of the flesh? So today our theme is love, love in a time of selfishness. Love Paul uses as the first of all the fruits. And in many ways, love is the source of all the other ones. You know, like light, shot through a prism, separates into disparate colors. In some ways, love is the crown of all the fruits that produces and creates all of the others. The love, love is the source of all the fruits. And so we've got to begin there as Paul does. So let's look at love today under three headings. First, we'll look at the antithesis of love. What is it that love stands against? Uh, second, what is the nature of love? What is love according to the Bible? And third, let's look at the cultivation of love in us. So first, the antithesis of love. Each week, what we're gonna do is look not just at the particular fruit, but also its contrasting vice. What is it in us and in the society around us that works against this particular fruit? Uh, in this case, the fruit of love. Now, when you go back, um, and you could do this later, go back and read Paul's list of vices. I, we didn't reread that section this morning. That's what we looked at two weeks ago. What you can see and notice is that nearly every single one of the vices that he mentions are ultimately about the self. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, dissensions, factions, envy, selfish ambition. See, nearly all of them describe a relational dynamic in which a person is seeking to take or extract from another person rather than to give or contribute. Uh, and so this, this self-centeredness, the Bible teaches again and again, is actually the antithesis of love. We were made to put not self, but God and each other, other people at the center of our lives. That's what we were made for. If you go back and read the early chapters of Genesis. We were made to put God, others, even creation and the service of creation at the very center of our lives. And yet what sin does, what it did then, what it continues to do is it pushes God and others to the margins and brings the self, the 
appetites and desires of the self back into the center of our lives. This is why Augustine and then later Luther uh, famously describe human beings as not homo sapiens, not men of wisdom, but he described human beings as homo incurvatus in se, man, that's Latin for man turned in upon himself, which I think is just an amazing, probably one of the best descriptions of, of sin out there. If the essence of being a human is to live for God and others, then the essence of sin is to be turned in upon oneself. Um, you know, I, 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 I got to read this quote. I know it's a bit heady and long, but Jonathan Edwards is just amazing on this. Like, just bear with me on this, okay, y'all? Um, this is what Edwards says. He says, he says when, we made, when we were made, when God made us, we had what he calls a largeness of soul, a large soul that was for God, for others, for creation. But then this is what he says. As soon as man had transgressed against God, his noble principles were immediately lost and all this excellent enlargedness of man's soul was gone. And listen to this. And thenceforth he himself shrank, as it were, into a little space, circumscribed and closely shut up within itself to the exclusion of all things else. Sin, like some powerful astringent, contracted his soul to the very small dimensions of selfishness and God was forsaken and fellow creatures forsaken and man retired within himself and became totally governed by narrow and selfish principles and feelings. Self-love became the absolute master of his soul. Isn't that an amazing image that the largeness of our souls contracted to a tiny little space circumscribed by the demanding appetites of the self. Whew. <laughs> now, now, here's the thing. Here's what's, here's what's scary about this. It's not like any of us are walking around. No humans walk around saying, I just want to live in the tiny circumscribed cell of my own appetites, right? Like nobody is, is walking around sort of uh, 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 seeking to be a, a selfish person. Very few people actually consciously are seeking to flourish selfishness. The problem is, is that this just feels so natural. It feels so natural to us. And the fact is, is that unfortunately, our society and our culture rewards and encourages self-centeredness on so many levels. You know, back in 2015, Coleman Whitehead, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning author, wrote an essay in the New York Times called How You Do You, the phrase you do you, perfectly captures our narcissistic culture. He wrote that this phrase, and you might've heard before, like, you know, you do you. Uh, it's quickly becoming sort of the new ethic of our society. He writes this, in a world where the selfie has become the dominant art form, tautological phrases like you do you and its tribe provide a philosophical scaffolding for our ever evolving, ever more complicated narcissism. So what he means by that is, I don't know if you've heard that people use phrase you do you or I've used it, you've, maybe you've used it. It basically just means, look man, eat what you want, do what you want. Um, behave how you want, sleep with who you want. It doesn't really matter the impact of your actions on other people because you do you. You do you. It, it perfectly embodies our culture's commitment to personal fulfillment and self-actualization. Now, what we've seen in the last year, and I think what the coronavirus pandemic has demonstrated, is just how truly impoverished of a worldview 
this is for sustaining democracy <laughs> in a society, right? Here's the irony of the situation that we've been in. 12 months ago, the only way the virus would have been curbed is if people embodied a spirit of self-sacrifice. If people chose to limit travel, limit social contact, limit fun, limit personal freedoms so that the virus wouldn't spread. In other words, what was required to beat the virus was a commitment to self-denial, to not do you, right? To not do you. But instead, we've seen a you-do-you culture cataclysmically fail to rise to the occasion. Michael Kruger, the president of Reformed Theological Seminary, uh, wrote this, the problem with the way that we behaved in the pandemic has not been that we were unprepared scientifically. The problem is that we were unprepared morally. Isn't that amazing? So like, you know, a, guy, a man gets on a plane knowing that he has virus symptoms and gets on anyway, infects the entire plane. A woman refuses to wear a mask in a crowded grocery store because she says it violates her personal freedom. You know, a guy throws a party or continues with a spring break trip or his summer plans, disregarding the risk because, you know, why should I not be able to have the fun that I want? As Michael Kruger says, nothing tests the validity of a worldview like tragedy and suffering. And the coronavirus, as awful as it is, has done at least one good thing. Namely, it has exposed our culture's commitment to relativism for what it really is, an utterly unworkable and unsustainable worldview. A culture that just says, hey man, you do you, that puts the self as the sovereign arbiter of behavior and definer of truth, ultimately cannot function <laughs> for very long. So this is the antithesis of love. It is selfishness. So that leads us to ask, what is the nature of love? What is love according to scripture? Because what we think of when we hear the word love may not be what the Bible actually means by it. Now, you can't talk about love, um, at least I uh, can't as a preacher, without mentioning C.S. Lewis in his famous book, The Four Loves. Lewis, in this book, says that what we often think of as love is often just another expression of human selfishness. So this is probably one of his most famous quotes from the book. He says, on earth, this desire is often called love. In hell, I feign that they recognize it as hunger. Now, what he means by that is that love is often confused with what Lewis calls ego hunger. Ego hunger. So you know, like the butterflies that we often associate with falling in love might actually just be the flattery of having someone give me attention or affection, the flattery of being wanted or the feeling of having someone meet my needs and affections. The desire to be loved, to have my personal needs met is often confused with love itself. And so what we need, Lewis says, is a new definition of love that is not produced from our own self and its needs, but is given to us externally from the outside that is no longer based in the self. And we get this ultimately as Christians, we know from the person of Jesus, from God's incarnate love for us in Jesus Christ. Fleming Rutledge, uh, a wonderful writer in her masterful book on the crucifixion, she wrote this, sentimental overly spiritualized love is not capable of the sustained unconditional agape of Christ shown in the cross. Only from the perspective of the crucifixion can the true nature of Christian love be seen over against all that the world calls love. What she's saying is the only way that we can get a true meaning of love is by revelation. And that revelation comes in and through the death of God on the cross for us in Jesus. 
that there we see what the Bible calls agape, which is cross-shaped. That's love. It is the sacrificial surrendering of the self for the sake of others. And this is what the apostle John says in 1 John 4. He says this, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is love, John says, that what we see God doing for us in Jesus, sacrificing himself, giving himself for us. That's what love it is. It is a sacrificial cost-bearing act of generosity on behalf of others. This is how God has loved us. And John says, now with the life of God in you, you now have the power to love others in this same way. That's what love is. Agape, which is the word that John uses for love here. Agape is other-centered, sacrificial giving of the self for others. Agape is Jesus-shaped, cross-shaped, sacrificial love, other-centered, sacrificial giving of the self for others. That is the nature of Christian love. And that's the fruit of love that God wants to produce in us. So the last question is then, how do we do it? How do we cultivate love? How do we change? How do we go about becoming people who no longer bear the fruit of selfishness, but who bear the fruit of love? Do we just try real hard? Do we just, you know, get, uh, I don't know, emotionally worked up and listen to praise music and conjure up loving feelings inside? I mean, how do we become people who bear the fruit of love? I want to know that. I really do because, man, I'm so selfish. Well, I, I think scripture and Jesus, what Jesus says about this is so beautiful because what I realized this week in studying this is that love, according to Jesus, and I think Paul, is always both gift and task. It is both something that we receive because we cannot do it on our own. We receive the power to do it from God the Spirit, but then it is a task. It is something that we have to practice and actually do. So let's just talk about both of those. First, we see that love uh, is, must be received as a gift. Look at what Jesus says in our text from John 15. He says, I want you to bear much fruit to be my disciples. And here's how you do it. As the father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. Isn't that amazing? That Jesus says, I want you to bear good fruit. And here's the first thing you need to do. Be loved. Remain in my love. Stay in my love. Receive my love. Paul says something very similar in Romans 5. He says, God has poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. I just love that image. It's like, imagine your heart is a big empty jug and the spirit is just pouring the love of God into your heart and it's just splashing over with the favor of God. What an amazing image, right? Jesus says, this is where your power to love comes from. Not from yourself, but from the love of God through me by the spirit pouring into you. Thank goodness Jesus does not say, remain in how you feel about God, right? 
Oh my gosh, I'm so glad Jesus didn't say that because how I feel about God fluctuates all the time. Sometimes I feel close to God, sometimes I feel far from God, sometimes I don't even know if God is there. You know, I fluctuate. I'm like the insecure partner in the relationship. Like, does he love me? I'm not sure, <laughs> right? But he does not say, remain in how you feel about God. He says, remain in how God feels about you. And how does God feel about you? It is an eternal covenant of faithful love sealed with the sacrifice of the cross. His love for you cannot change. It is eternal, constant, unchanging. It is marked forever. As Sally Lloyd-Jones says, God loves you with a never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. And Jesus says, remain in that. Remain in that. Just believe that. That's your job, to believe it and to remain in it. I got this image this week of like staying under an umbrella in the rain. It's all pouring around you and your job is just to, to remain there under the love of God, in the love of God, surrounded by the love of God, rooted in the love of God. Only the love of God will reorient the incurvatus, the selfish turning in of the heart, satisfy you so deeply that you just don't need so much to be seen and known and loved by other people because you are known and seen and loved by the triune God. So that's the first thing. Love is something to receive. I, how do you do that? You know, um, you pray for it. You ask the spirit for it. Uh, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be open, that you might know the love of Christ, how high and deep and wide and far it is. This week, um, yeah, I'll just tell you what I did this week. Um, so every day I started my day with, um, I sat in a chair and I set my timer for 10 minutes and I sat in silence in the presence of God. And I just took that phrase of Jesus, remain in my love. And I just meditated on that one phrase again and again, remain in my love, remain in my love. It's hard to sit still for 10 minutes and remain in the love of God. And nothing magical happened, but you know what? Slowly over the week I found just kept coming back to that. Remain in my love. Remain in my love. Remain in my love. Remain in the love of God. Receive love as a gift. The second thing, though, is we've got to also realize that we don't just receive love as a gift. We also have to pursue love as a task. You know, after telling us to remain in my love, Jesus then said, my command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. He says, do it. Don't just receive it, do it. And, John, and Paul says something similar in Colossians 3. He tells his friends, put on love. Now that's weird, isn't it? Because see, for the biblical writers, love is not like a virus <laughs> that you catch uh, passively. It's, a, it's like a piece of clothing that you actively put on. Jamie Smith, a philosopher, calls love a good moral habit. Isn't that interesting? Love is a moral habit, and a habit is something you practice. Because our hearts are so inclined towards the self, it takes a lot of practice through the help of the Spirit to turn our lives outward towards God and towards other people. It takes practice. It's got to become a habit so that it becomes more and more natural. And the hope is that the more you practice love, sacrificially orienting towards others, the work of love becomes more 
natural to you. You know, some of you, a lot of you have had children or maybe you're at home trying to wrangle some toddlers right now. I don't know if you, do you remember having to teach your kids how to get dressed? Um, it's actually kind of hard to teach a little toddler how to get dressed because if you think about it, clothes are kind of complicated. There's like a big hole and small holes and, and like, remember, you know, trying to teach a little girl how to dress and you say, put the, put your head through the big hole and your arms through the small hole and your legs through the, and you know, they always get it wrong. But then one day your toddler comes down and she's fully dressed and you just start, you're like, yes, you did it. You got dressed. Now, fast forward 15 years later, when your teenage daughter comes down the stairs and she's fully dressed, do you say, yes, honey, you did it. You got dressed. No, why? Because she's 15, right? She's done it every day. But guess what happened? After what is first requires tremendous practice, eventually becomes habitual. After putting it on and putting it on and putting it on and putting it on, eventually it's second nature. And this is what Paul says with love. It begins with practice, intentionality. And after practicing and practicing and practicing, the work of other orientation becomes habitual, second nature. That's the goal for the Christian community. Well, how do we do that? How do we learn that? Well, we learn it in the community of Jesus. Augustine famously called the church the school of charity, the school of love, where we learn no longer to be self-centered, but to be other-centered. We do that in the company of each other. Um, so let me just mention two quick ways how we can do that as a church family right now, even in a pandemic. The first is practice corporate acts of worship. Practice corporate acts of worship, like what we're doing right now. Now you might say, what does that have to do with love? Well, here's why. Because when we gather to worship God, we're doing something radically countercultural against a you-do-you culture. We are saying, I am not at the center of life. I'm not at the center. We're saying that our needs and desires and wants are not at the center, but we're coming back to the true center, which is the holy triune God. Worship is the ultimate de-centering of self because it turns us outward to God and we are in the company of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. The communal habit of showing up each week, even when you don't feel like it, even when you don't want to, but the discipline of showing up each week, whether here in this room or online, as most of us are doing now, is training the heart away from the self, outwards towards God and others. Now we have to be careful because this doesn't happen automatically because our whole lives are formed by a consumer market economy that puts the self at the center. It's very easy to slip into believing that even corporate worship is just another market style exchange. Uh, it's very especially easy to do this right now when just like you're watching TV, you know, you start watching worship. So when you find yourself saying, well, I just didn't get very much out of that this morning, or, um, you know, I didn't really like that second song very much, or, you know, I really didn't like what Brooke was wearing, or I thought Corey, it was weird when Corey hung the mask down his ear on the left side, or whatever it might be. So when you, know, when you start finding yourself analyzing that happens and sort of determining whether you like it or not, you're actually sort of slipping into the bondage of viewing everything, even worship through the lens of self-interest. And so we must resist being colonized by market-style thinking and realize week by week that we do not primarily come to worship to get something out of it or to have our spiritual batteries charged or to be blessed or to earn God's favor. We come here because God is worthy of our praise and we put him at the center instead of ourselves, because that is the purpose of our being. So right worship retrains our loves, turns us back outward towards God and others. So that's, 
That's one thing. Core practice. Practice this, friends. Practice corporate acts of worship. Second, though, practice tiny acts of sacrifice. Tiny acts of sacrifice. Mother Teresa famously said, we cannot do great things, but we can do small things with great love. We cannot do great things, but we can do small things with great love. And that sounds cliche, I know, but gosh, what, how relevant for this moment. When actually, as a church, we probably shouldn't be doing great things. We shouldn't be doing spectacular things. We should be doing small, safe things, which is actually probably the most loving thing for the common good. In a time when we are tempted to put ourselves and our families first and take care of our own, God is calling us to do small things for each other in great love, for each other and for our neighbors. I just want to challenge you this week, especially in a time when we all feel so disconnected, maybe from each other and from the church. Ask yourself in the weeks to come, what if every day you ask yourself, what's one tiny sacrifice I can do for another person, especially in the body of Christ? What's a tiny person? I, <laughs> tiny person. What's a tiny thing? Maybe for a tiny person. What's a, what's a tiny thing I could do for another person with great love? Maybe it's a phone call to someone that you know lives alone. Maybe it's a meal for a family under stress. Maybe it's a gift for someone who's you know, working long hours, maybe in the hospital. Um, maybe it's a choice to just simply refrain from criticism when people are just bearing a lot. Um, maybe it's a, a, you know, a, a, a commitment to just do the dishes for the third night in a row, uh, even though you did it the last few nights, and not call attention to it. Uh, it's just simply asking, who in the church have I not seen from a while or heard from or is falling through the cracks and reaching out to them? These are small things or tiny things or unglamorous things, but in the economy of Jesus' kingdom, they are great things because we never know their eternal impact. I think one of the best movies of the past year is this movie, uh, The Hidden Life by Terrence Malick. I highly commend it if you've not seen it. It's about an ordinary Austrian farmer named Franz who is the most boring, simple, ordinary man who is living a completely insignificant life. And he's drafted into the army, and he refuses to make an oath of allegiance to Hitler. And everyone around him pressures him because they're basically saying, look, you're so insignificant. Your faithfulness makes no difference. Uh, no one will know. Even his priest says to him, just say the words, man. Just make the oath. God only cares about your heart. But he refuses. And there's this one scene where he's sitting with his lawyer and the, the oath of allegiance is in front of him. And the lawyer says, man, just sign this and you can go free. And the man looks at him and says, but I already am free. And, he, and he's killed this man with a tiny, normal, insignificant, hidden life. Kills, is killed for his act of faithfulness. And the, the, the movie ends with this amazing quote from George Eliot from her novel Middlemarch. This says this, the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. So what unhistoric, hidden, invisible things can you do this week that no one will ever see, that won't be on social media, that won't be, you know, gets you lots of praise, will probably never even be known or forgotten. Tiny acts of sacrificial love. But in these small acts of great love, we can cumulatively, through God the Spirit, end up reshaping 
culture and community. So friends, let me sum up. In a time of selfishness, God is calling us to bear the fruit of love. And this is only possible through the spirit. The spirit wants to enter into our curved in hearts, remake them through our union with Jesus so that the new fruit of love might come forth. May God pour out his love into our hearts through the spirit that we might resemble Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we do pray that you would take our selfish, curved in hearts and that you would remake them through our union with Jesus that we might learn to love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.